Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And we're a little late getting into the recording uh, studio today because we just had an, an office-wide uh, meeting with uh, Chief HowStuffWorks Legal Consultant uh, Richard W. Glazer. Uh Great guy, excellent lawyer, but uh, anytime we have these uh, in-person meetings with him, it's always a, a little bit tedious. Well, yeah, part of the problem is that you can't approach him physically, and if you do, he will immediately start wheeling away because he cannot be touched. Right, and he's, he's not confined to a wheelchair or anything. He is uh, he just remains on a, a wheeled platform that's covered with throw pillows and stuff with, with hay. Yeah, it's basically a wooden pallet with, uh, with little rolly office chair wheels on the bottom. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, you need that when you suffer from the glass delusion. That's right, because there's nothing actually wrong with him. He doesn't suffer from brittle bone disorder or anything of that matter. He's he not just, the guy from Unbreakable. He's not the the villain from Unbreakable. He's ju- he just has this uh, psychiatric delusion that his body is made out of glass, uh, which makes it all the more horrifying when you roll through uh, Pont City Market here because everything's under construction. Right. He's constantly afraid that the construction workers on site are going to grab him and turn him into a glass window. Yeah, but the meeting is over. The meeting is done with. Uh, Glasser has rolled off back to his uh, the, the padded chamber of his uh, offices, and we are here to talk about glass delusion itself, the real glass delusion uh, that uh, is largely a product of the past, but as we'll discuss. Uh, has popped up uh, with some contemporary cases as well. Right. So you're not likely to meet or have met somebody suffering from the glass delusion. But there are times and places in history where this was an extremely common psychological ailment. Yes, they're certainly common enough that it, it pops up in the literature. Uh, yeah. And then we'll, as, as we discussed, that uh, th- that raises some questions at times. But uh, uh, let's yeah, let's start by just looking to the literature and looking at some of the, the key cases that pop up in history, and then we'll start teasing this apart a bit. Sure. Well, one early case that we have in the literature is the story of King Charles the Sixth of France. Uh, so Charles the Sixth had a sort of troubled reign. He inherited the throne of France when he was eleven years old. He didn't immediately get to wield power because some of his older relatives were sort of ruling as regents for him. Eventually, he he came of age and sort of took the throne in actual practice. But Charles suffered from mental illness throughout his life. And some of his episodes are described as basically paranoid in nature. One of the earliest in our histories is that Charles was out on a minor military campaign with a group of knights and soldiers going out to, I think, fight some ne'er-do-well duke. And a stranger approached the procession that Charles was in and warned him that he was going to suffer a great betrayal. Mm. And after this warning, one of Charles's soldiers happened to make the mistake of making a metal clanking noise with his helmet or armor, and Charles freaked out. He started attacking his own men, and he allegedly killed one of his own knights in the ensuing confusion. Oh. Uh, but this is not the most topically relevant of Charles's delusions, because according to accounts recorded by Pope Pius II, one of the other common delusions that Charles would suffer from was the belief that his body was made of glass. 
And so he, during these times, he allegedly refused to let people touch him. Mm -hmm. And he would sort of like sit still and try to cushion and protect himself from being shattered. He even demanded some form of reinforced clothing as a sort of like armor to protect his fragile body. Huh. You know, it's 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 fascinating to to think of this uh, in connection with his his place in life. You know, ascending to the throne so early. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even if he didn't have, uh, if, even if his power was more symbolic uh, early on, uh, because uh, it's, we'll we'll discuss the the two themes that keep coming up uh, with with the glass delusion is uh, is that of uh, the body as a vessel, a breakable vessel, mm-hmm. and uh, and and fragility and uh, and the impermanence of life. Because here's a guy who. You know, he's he's essentially a vessel for blood, right? Yeah, he, he has <laughs> it's his blood that has the claim to the throne, and he is just kind of the the fragile container for that blood and for that that right to rule. And uh, and he, and he's probably th- throughout his life, he has, you know has a very clear view of just how um, um, how slight that grasp of power and that position really is. Yeah, it's got to be especially the case when you are a child king. Like if you inherit the throne at a very early age, it's quite clear that you are not capable of ruling yet. And that is made clear to you by the fact that there are some older regents actually pulling all the strings. Uh, so it's not really your merit that you can believe makes you king. I mean, not that merit makes any king king. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, you, you're definitely just waiting your turn because of who your parents were. Yeah, and it seems like the, the common tropes that you see in, in historical uh, accounts and reenactments and, of course, in our fiction is you either you either go in that fragile direction. I'm who I'm this glass thing. I'm just this child at the center of this huge wheel that's turning or uh, you go in the uh, megalomaniac direction of <laughs> yeah. like, of course I'm in charge. I know I'm 11, but I know everything, and I'm fully uh, fully capable of ruling this kingdom. Right. Now uh, that's uh, not the not the only case we see in history, but that again that was uh, that's the earliest uh, glass delusion case on record that we could find. Uh, also, there's a 1614 case. So this is some uh, centuries later, recorded by the physician uh, to Philip II of Spain, uh, Alfonso Ponce de Santa Cruz. Uh, the patient uh, is actually unknown. We don't know who this uh, individual was, but it was possibly a French prince, as he was also described by uh, French uh, King Henry IV's uh, chief physician. So this is uh, another case where you have an individual who's just languishing on straw beds, uh, avoiding uh, being broken by any kind of physical contact. Um, there's a there's a large sense of melancholy in all these cases as well. You know, it's like I. I I can't move because if I move, I might, I, I'm, I'm going to die. I'm going to shatter. Sure. And we don't just mean melancholy in, in the modern sense. Mm-hmm. We would use it like melancholy in the infinite sadness. But, right. the, but the, the actual sort of medieval bodily humors based theory of melancholy, which was a somewhat different thing. Yeah. And also far more debilitating and, and seen as, uh, as rooted in these, these key, these four key, uh, biological principles, right? The, the mm-hmm. four key humors. So, uh, the treatment, of course, was interesting for this, and it seems a bit tongue-in-cheek. I don't know to what extent we can we actually believe it, uh, but supposedly uh, the, the treatment for this individual's glass solution was to set fire to the straw in the bed, which immediately cured him because he jumps out of the bed for fear of the fire, and whoa, he do- <laughs> doesn't shatter, he doesn't break. And you see this kind of sink-or-swim treatment in a, in a number of the accounts. Yeah, there was another account I was reading about in one of the main uh, sources we used for this episode where... 
and I believe it was suspected that this is an embellished or made up account. But right. the story goes that there was a man who believed his buttocks were made of glass and the doctor cured him by beating him. Yeah, beating him, like basically spanking him with a cane and saying, ah, look, your buttocks are not shattering and the pain you're feeling is purely uh, um, organic in nature. And I think in that ca- in that uh, account or story, the um, the individual with glass delusion was himself a glass artisan. So you had that, hmm. that level of uh, complexity to it. Another example from history would be the Flemish poet philosopher Gaspar van Borel from, uh, who lived from 1584 to 1648, also known as Barleus. Yeah, this is uh, another individual who uh, reportedly suffered melancholy throughout his life and may have suffered uh, a mirror delusion. Or it's possible he was just waxing poetic and philosophic when he said the following. But how often the fantasy wants to act absurdly and ridiculously in melancholics. Of how much does it convince the unhappy fellows? This one thinks he is made of glass and terrified is fearful of people standing close to him. And in, and in this we kind of get into one of the problems that, that emerges when you look back on the glass delusion literature is that how many of these cases are are actual cases where someone was suffering from a uh, you know a psychiatric delusion about their the nature of their body and uh, to what extent are they they embellish stories are they just outright uh, you know literary devices uh, uses of the the metaphor of the body as glass yeah one of the things about the glass delusion is that it's so it's so imagistic and it's so evocative and mm-hmm. it makes a great story. And whenever there is a condition that makes a great story, you've got to be suspicious of some of these historical accounts because they make such great stories. Yeah, it reminds me of the, uh, you know, the old, uh, not even that old, but the, uh, the, the, the sort of urban legends about the, you know, somebody took so much LSD that they thought they were, um, a bug and climbed inside a keyhole or thought they were a key and climbed inside a keyhole, something like of that nature. <laughs> um, which it, it sounds wonderful because it's so ridiculous and, and so ridiculous that it's actually kind of horrifying. But then when you start teasing it apart and saying, well, did this really happen? Was that actually a delusion? Uh, or is it just uh, make for some, a compelling bit of fiction? Yeah, so one of our main sources for this episode was an essay by someone going by the name Gil Speak, uh, published in the History of Psychiatry in 1990, and it was called An Odd Kind of Melancholy, Reflections on the Glass Delusion in Europe, 1440 to 1680. And the author of this essay makes some really interesting general observations mm-hmm. about when you see this delusion popping up. And one of the most interesting to me was that the author says it is an affliction of the man of letters in Europe. Yeah, this is interesting because, because again, we've already touched on the, the literary history of glass delusion, that we see it in medical accounts published studies essentially of the day, uh, as well as as fiction, outright fiction, as well in, in that sort of space between where you don't know if a, if, a, if a poet or a philosopher is talking about something that actually happened or just uh, you know trying to make a, a prove a point about the human condition. Mm-hmm. But at any rate, you have uh, certain individuals who are perhaps you know, already a little um, more inclined toward uh, bouts of melancholy, and they're reading all this stuff. They're of a class where they have both the time and the ability to consume all of these materials. And, uh, and th- so they're, they're feeding their mind with the idea of glass delusion and perhaps allowing the, 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 their mind to, uh, to generate the delusion. Right. So the prevalence of glass delusions could be kind of self-reinforcing mm-hmm. that uh, the people who are the most in temperament susceptible to it are also the people who are being fed stories about it. Right. 
Yeah, it's kind of like is, if if today somebody was watching a bunch of zombie uh, TV and reading zombie fiction and zombie comics and then suddenly started believing that they themselves were undead or beginning to have a, a very real fear of, uh, of the undead. And likewise, if individual centuries from now looked back on media from today and said, woo, there were a lot of these zombie stories going on, uh, were any of these accounts uh, uh, actual um, happenings or were they were just uh, fiction that people were obsessed with in the day? Yeah, is it life imitating art or the undead imitating life? Yeah, like one of the uh, the big examples that comes up uh, comes from uh, Cervantes' uh, The Lawyer of Glass, which, of course, we reference uh, in our introduction here, uh, which uh, which tells the story of a, of a lawyer who is uh, essentially poisoned. Um, uh, did you want to do you want to break into uh, into his uh, his story? Here? Well, of course, yeah. So the the young lawyer is a prodigy. He is very gifted and and witty and skillful. And he graduates from law school and there is a young lady who falls in love with him and wants him to fall in love with her. So she comes up with a love potion that is supposed to get the job done, but instead it goes haywire. She slips the love potion into a fruit that he eats and instead of falling in love with her, he falls into a coma. (laughs) And then when he wakes from his coma, he suffers from the delusion that his body is made of glass. He has contracted the glass delusion. Nevertheless, he goes on to have a pretty famous and interesting career. So he becomes known all over the place for being the glass lawyer, the lawyer who has to travel around in a coach filled with straw to, you know, <laughs> blunt all the corners and make sure he doesn't get shattered. They say he walks in the center of the street to avoid uh, roof tiles falling down on him and, and shattering him. And then eventually he wakes up from his delusion. He says, oh, no, you know what? I'm not made of glass, but now this is what he's famous for. <laughs> so I have to keep the, I have to keep it going. I have to keep images <laughs> up, right? Um, so, yeah, this becomes a, you know, a fertile meme for literate Europeans. And you see glass buttocks showing up in a lot of these accounts. There are all kinds of glass body parts. Mm-hmm. There glass are arms, arms, yeah, heads. arms, legs, heads, hearts, chests. But it seems like the most common one is buttocks. Yeah. Because it's also the, the the most humorous, and I think that's I guess. that's the that's the the thing is that uh, if if you're going to tell a story about somebody with a body part made out of glass, the the buttocks are perfect. Well, to mention another literary example in the English play Lingua from 1607 by the playwright Thomas Tomkiss, there is a glass man in this play named Tactus who mm-hmm. says to a character named Olfactus, "quote I am an urinal." I dare not stir for fear of cracking in the bottom. Uh, and so in this, we get into the, the subset of Glassman, in which the Glassman is not only a glass vessel, he is a glass vessel full of urine in the delusion. Right. So the author of that essay I mentioned tells us that actually at the time, urinal was a synonym. It just meant like a glass flask, a small flask, but that it certainly had the connotation of something you would fill up w- with urine. Right, because you're just sitting not... around the study and you need uh, you need to go. You just <laughs> grab uh, whatever kind of glass apparatus is uh, handy. Right, yeah. And that's just one of the uh, uh, the connections here when you start looking at the uh, uh, what glass delusion meant to uh, contemporary uh, readers and, uh, and, and anyone hearing any of these stories. Yeah, so the glass delusion isn't just about the physical fragility of the body, the, the breakableness. It takes on other significant dimensions as well. Indeed. I mean, at the time we see 
Fortune is often described as a, a goddess, uh, a fickle goddess that's made of glass. Mm. You know, it's it's fragile. It's it's fickle. Um, likewise, uh, chastity is sometimes uh, explained uh, uh, with uh, the metaphor of glass. Uh, the, uh, particularly, uh, there's a French bishop, uh, Saint uh, François de Sales, who compared uh, the human body to glass, and, and then you have these different human bodies going around, uh, and they should not be carried together without danger of collision and breakage. Um, <laughs> and then there's this rich tradition in the Bible uh, describing the human condition as that of a vessel. And uh, now there's not a number of these uh, these descriptions that uh, that appear in uh, the biblical uh, tradition are conflicting, and there's not a definite thread throughout them, but. One of the basic ones is uh, the human uh, body as a vessel in which, uh, like the you know, the Holy Spirit is invested, right? Right. If you crack this vessel, the the pure element that's being poured in can spill out. And right. That's a bad thing. So, sort of the body is a temple type thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's this idea that one wants to preserve his purity and goodness, and but you do that by remaining intact to, to not let it spill out onto the ground and be wasted. Which makes me instantly think of the Kool-Aid man, really, as our <laughs> our our uh, generation's glass man. Yeah, he is uh, he is a vessel of glass, and uh, God or you know the Kool-Aid Corporation, whoever has invested him with this red power. You know, one of the things I immediately think of then is that if the Kool-Aid man were to lose his Kool-Aid mm-hmm. to be cracked and leak all of his red power out onto the ground, he would not only be fragile and breakable, but he would be transparent. Ah. You could see straight through the Kool-Aid man. And that seems significant also in the history of the glass delusion. That's right. Uh, photophobia uh, factors into a number of these. So not only are you afraid that you're going to, to shatter on impact with any other kind of physical object, not only are you, you know, keeping yourself confined, you're, you're a super soft bed, but you're also closing the shutters because you don't want light to shine through you. Yeah. Because that would be kind of horrifying, right? Because the, the light is shining through your glass body, revealing the emptiness uh, of your form, in addition to the uh, ephemeral nature uh, of your form. Yeah, it's like the ultimate privacy weird out. You're not only exposed, but you're actually transparent. People can not only see your nakedness, but see beyond you. Yeah, at the time uh, when as as uh, optics uh, you know makes its way into everyday life, especially for you know learned individuals, yeah, you know you're, you're putting uh, uh, looking glasses, spectacles on your nose, on your nose, so you can read, etc. Uh, by the early 17th century, you actually see numerous books with titles uh, that refer to the looking glass uh, to imply a means of self-discovery. So, as Gil Speak uh, argues in his work, uh, you see uh, melancholic photophobia uh, representing the fear of self-discovery. A kind of techno metaphor for the old adage: "The light that uh, sets me free can also blind me." Yeah, so it's not just the fear of being seen through by others, but the fear of seeing through oneself. Another thing about the Kool-Aid man, he's made out of glass. He seems like the perfect candidate for glass delusion. And yet, what is the other thing that Kool-Aid man does all the time? He busts through cinder blocks. Yeah. <laughs> so I, uh, how does that How does that work? How, I've never really, really questioned it. I was just... Uh, you know, I, I just completely trusted the media that I was presented with. Of course, Kool-Aid Man can bust through a wall, but he's a glass vessel. What's uh, 
What's going on here? Well, he could be some of that special reinforced glass that, you know, they use in the, in the army vehicles for windshields and mm. stuff. It doesn't break so easily. I'm not quite sure why they would invest that technology in the Kool-Aid man, though. Or maybe it's all about the, the Kool-Aid itself. Like, he should break. Like, without the Kool-Aid in him, he would have no power. He would be just that fragile vessel, but Kool-Aid is so good. And so so potent <laughs> that it it can make even the Kool Aid Man, a, a creature of of glass, break through that wall. Yeah, or it's just that the cinder blocks in the wall have been made with sand and thus are very very soft. Oh, that's true. That's true. <laughs> so another aspect of the glass delusion that might be interesting to talk about would be the significance of glass as a technology, because the bodily fragility delusion mm-hmm. is not, it did not begin with the glass delusion. In fact, Gil Speak tells us that there are classical and medieval accounts of earthenware men. So this is sort of older glass style, the ceramics, the, yeah. the glazed ceramics that are not quite the type of clear glass we think about emerging as the, the window stuff of more recent history. But back in the olden days, you might think you were a clay pot and you could crack just as easily as a clay pot. Yeah, and the the techno metaphor here, uh, you know, just you know makes perfect sense. You can imagine a, a, some you know member of an ancient culture, and they have this uh, ceramic uh, pot that they've created. A lot of work has gone into it, a lot of artistry, and it's a it's a useful item, but it's also so easily easily shattered. So that that seems a, an irresistible metaphor for the human experience. And as we mm-hmm. discussed in our recent episodes on techno religion. We can't help but look to our technology and our man-made uh, devices and systems and try to use those to define ourselves. Whether you're talking about, uh, you know, metaphors for, you know, agricultural uh, technology or uh, or construction technology in ancient texts, or modern interpretations where we we think of our mind as a computer or we, you know, illogically think of our memories as videotapes. Yeah, and very much I think there is the same kind of uh, thing we talked about in techno-religion where ancient metaphors, ancient technological metaphors are very acceptable to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, talking about the turning of a wheel, that feels sufficiently ancient and and deep enough in the human experience to be a metaphor for something magical and and related to God. But talking about computers and cell phones, that feels crass in the context of religion. And I think the same thing could could possibly apply when talking about what delusions are likely to take hold. Things that are, I don't know, have more of an ancient pedigree seem to be more plausible to us. Of course, then again, you, you do hear people saying they put microchips in my brain. I mean, that is a modern delusion some people suffer from. Uh, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, we when we take that uh, that understanding of it and when, and we can easily apply it to uh, uh, you know to the the 14th century uh, because this is a time when we saw an existing technology, glass, really. Uh, Really develop, really evolve, because because uh, we'd had glass for a while. We we have earliest the, some of the earliest man made glass objects. Uh, you know, generally beads uh, date back to around uh, uh, 3500 BCE. But uh, around uh, 1320, we see the crown glass blowing technique really kick off. Uh, broadsheet glass emerges uh, earlier in 1226, and these really. Um, Change what's possible with glass and uh, the, and the sort of applications that we can uh, we can use, and of course uh, you know we're seeing uh, stained glass show up in uh, in churches uh, 
which uh, which has an interesting uh, connection to to mystical thoughts on glass. Uh, there is a certainly a mysticism of light uh, at the time, a key factor in uh, Abbot uh, Chouger of uh, Saint Denis. Uh, his uh, 12th century push for larger windows and colored glasses in churches. Uh, and of course this, you know, the, the mysticism light of light here is, is, you know, pretty obvious. You get into ideas of, of light as this, uh, you know, this metaphor for God's presence, for God's love, the light of God shining in. Uh, and of course optics have always been an area of scientific inquiry, even in times when, uh, when science was, you know, lobbed in there with the philosophical and even magical pursuits. Uh, you have glass balls, mirror, other optical creations often used as wards against evil spirits or used in divination. So uh, th- there's fertile ground there for you, even as glass begins to show up everywhere, um, at least in the, the ritzier parts of your, your, your local uh, population centers. There's still a lot of mysticism uh, in, if not the substance itself, at least in the fact that it is uh, used as a conveyance for light. Yeah, and the fact that it can be used to manipulate light. I yes. mean, I'm sure once that happened, that must have been strange to people for, for whom that was new. Yeah, I mean, look what a stained glass does to the interior of a cathedral, right? It transforms the light of day into this uh, this phantasmagorical uh, mix of colors. Yeah, and light is something we don't normally think about being able to manipulate, at least not in the, you know, at your caveman level of technology mm-hmm. or even at your, you know, early Middle Ages level of technology. What are you going to do with light? I mean, it's just coming from the sun, and you can make it with fire, and uh, you can I guess you can put a shade up. I mean. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, it's so pervasive now, our optical technology and our manipulation of light, that we don't even think about it. But we are just – today, we're just wizards of light. Like, just mm-hmm. in this room, look at all the sources of artificial light coming at us in the way that we've we're, – we're manipulating even the, the artificiality of it through various, uh, you know, various lenses, through screens, through – different types of bulbs. I mean, it's, it's kind of crazy. So today we live in an age where we don't even question the magic. But if we look back to this time where the ma- a lot of the magic is really beginning to come online, mm-hmm. um, you can see where that would really get into people's heads and help feed uh, existing tendencies towards delusion. Yeah. OK, so we've talked about the images and the ideas that fed into the glass delusion. But I think we haven't really talked about the explanation for the glass delusion. And this is always sort of difficult territory in psychology where you're trying to explain what need a psychological delusion answers. But that is something that people have speculated upon. Mm -hmm. So why does the glass lawyer think he is made of glass? What causes that? Yeah, in this, it really ties well into what's known as terror management theory, or TMT, which is uh, derived from uh, cultural anthropologist Ernest Becker's efforts to explain the motivational underpinnings of human behavior. Yeah. With, you know, no, no small It's all objective. about death, folks. <laughs> Everything's about death. Yeah, I mean, that's the key argument, is that like the biggest thing in life is the... Uh, is the eventuality of death. Yeah. And, that and our knowledge of it. Knowledge of it. Yeah, to realize it's coming. It's going to happen. It's going to happen to me. It's going to happen to everyone I know and love. Um, and there's nothing I can do about it. And there's there's very little I can do to predict when it's going to happen. And so this, this knowledge of death, this knowledge of impermanence is so pervasive that it factors into everything we do, both the, the, the fear of it, the wish to avoid it, and the desire for immortality, either some sort of, Literal immortality through today's science, um, 
religiously through ideas of resurrection or reincarnation or you know you know less less literal ideas of immortality such as I'm going to I'm going to be famous. I'm going to really make yeah. a name for myself or I have lots of kids. Lots lots of children or I'm just going to I'm going to make sure that my grave marker is made out of stone. I'm not right. made out of stone, but at least something with my name on it will be made out of stone. Right. And I will have a curse carved into it that anyone walking through the graveyard will tremble to look upon. And so you can really see where um if if you look at life through the lens, huh? Of uh, terror management <laughs> theory, uh, you can see how how glass delusion fits fits neatly into that. You can see, I mean, sure, yeah, yeah. It's kind of a perfect physical metaphor for realizing the fragility of one's existence. The yeah. sort of uh, the metaphorical fragility that you're always just a moment away potentially from the end, from being shattered. Yeah, and, you know, in this it reminds me a little bit of uh, a scene from David Cronenberg's Crash. Did you ever see this one? No, that's one of the few Cronenbergs I've not seen. Yeah, it's uh, I've heard it's messed up. It's messed up. It's a weird flick about uh, individuals who fetishize uh, like le- famous lethal car crashes and just car crashes in general. Um, but there's a scene early on where, uh, if I remember, uh, a character has been in a pretty pretty catastrophic uh, car wreck, and they have just recovered from their injury. Uh, and there, there's a scene of them riding in the car, and it's kind of a split shot with half of the uh, half of the scene is uh, is inside the vehicle, and then half of it is uh, a bit the busy highway on the other side. And it really does a great job of you know driving home this uh, this character's realization about the fragility of the human body. Yeah, there's that quote from the the novel Sutri by Cormac McCarthy, which uh, is is great. If you oh yeah, it. wonderful book. Yeah, it's very funny, which is unusual for McCarthy. That <laughs> uh, says, "What could a child know of the darkness of God's plan, or how flesh is so frail it is hardly more than a dream?" Ah, that's a great line. Not not one of the funnier moments. No, <laughs> in the in the book, no, but no 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 contact with watermelons in right. that one. But it, no, but Sutri is a Wonderful, wonderful book, full of plenty of uh, Cormac McCarthy darkness in places, but also, mm-hmm. again, it's it's also Cormac McCarthy at his his most humorous. Mm-hmm. So, one of the things you might have noticed about pretty much all of the cases we've mentioned so far is that they come from a particular time and place. We're talking about early modern Europe. And that was a particular time and place in which this delusion seemed to take hold. It suddenly became popular and you had glass buttocks everywhere. (laughs) But there are some more recent and even some modern cases of the glass delusion. And I think it would be really interesting to transition to look at those. Yeah, because uh, because these definitely occur outside of that era of... uh of glass as an exciting technology outside of an era in which you had these clear cultural influences, uh, you know, regarding the humors and the, you know, the idea of the body as some sort of a biblical vessel, etc. And in this, we come to the work of uh, psychiatrist Andy Lemain um, from uh, Leiden in the Netherlands. And uh, he has uh, in recent years claimed to have uncovered uh, contemporary cases of glass delusion. Interesting. Yeah, he was apparently lecturing on the topic, you know, just historically, you know, kind of, you know, how, how we've been discussing it. Uh, and then he was approached by a Dutch physician who uh, claimed to have run across a 1930s case of a woman who believed her legs and back were made of glass, uh, suspected uh, by the Dutch physician in question to have uh, been part of her particular extreme fear of personal contact, hmm. which is uh, which is an angle on it. That uh, that hadn't really we haven't really discussed uh, and maybe is 
ultimately a more modern angle to take on it, this uh, agoraphobia uh, as the the root of glass delusion in an individual. Yeah, it shows up in some of these earlier descriptions about p- people who, who feared being approached by others lest those people shatter them. But those older cases really do seem to have more to do w- with death. It yeah. seems to me like they they fear uh, all kinds of mechanical and physical trauma, you know, being afraid of roof tiles falling on you or of being jostled too much in the carriage or something. Which like are that. both kind of fears of technology. That's interesting. Yeah. But but this is strictly talking about personal contact. And typically when you're thinking about what would break glass, you don't think about somebody's hands. You think right. about, you know, dropping it on the floor or something like that. But I can definitely see how. This type of glass delusion could come into play as well. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, following this, um, an- another doctor brought him an additional case uh, from a different hospital from around 1964. But it, uh, but, but the really key moment in, uh, LeMayne's uh, research came when a young patient showed up at his own hospital claiming to be made out of glass. Wow. So, of course, he did what, uh, you know, you would expect. He said, well, well, come on in. I will get you a nice, cushion to set on and we will talk about your glass delusion because uh-huh. I really want to find out what's at the root of it. And and he made sure um, uh, not to lead the questions too much, not not to immediately presume that it had to do with right. with uh, with terror management theory and a fear of death and impermanence, etc. Or say here are the symptoms you should be experiencing if right. you have glass delusion. Yeah, yeah. I mean this guy's this guy's a pro, he knows what he's doing. So um it, it, in, in questioning uh, this uh, patient, it emerged that uh, the patient's feelings were similar uh, to the way we see through uh, the glass in a window, observing everything beyond us but not seeing the glass itself. So it was, it, it's, it's tied in this idea, almost a fear of invisibility. Yeah, so not just being exposed, but but of being inconsequential. Yeah, like I'm just. Not, not only am I just another person, but I'm a person that everyone just sees through. Mm-hmm. Like I only take up space, but not in people's minds, not mm-hmm. in their actual perceptions of reality. That's fascinating. Yeah, I think that the quote from uh, from from uh, the the individual as they were as they're looking out a window uh, at the the vista beyond, they say, "That's me. I'm there, and I'm not there, like the glass in a window." Yeah, so in the write-up we read of this incident, they described how uh, Lemaine found out from this patient that the patient had been in an accident. Mm. And following the accident, his family had been very overprotective of him. And that this glass delusion served as what they called a distance regulator. Hmm. It was an attempt to have a sort of self-controlled level of distance and privacy from all of the people leaning in on his life. So it might not be that a person necessarily fears being inconsequential. It might be that they desire to be less the focus of other people's attention. Which is, which serves to bring us back around, interestingly enough, to uh, the young 11-year-old King Charles, right? Yeah. Because here's this individual who's at the center of all these machinations and concerns about the future of a kingdom. Uh it's it's uh, you know we're speculating here, but uh, it seems like he it would be very easy for him to feel inconsequential and overmanaged and overtouched. Yeah, I think that's a good thought. And then of course there's also the possibility that the glass delusion has something to do with fears of effacement and social humiliation. 
Yeah, and this ties into the, into the idea that we live in this modern age where it's so easy to have anxieties about our, our personal fragility, uh, but also uh, transparency, uh, especially of our personal space. Um, so this again ties back into that idea that that I am uh, I'm not only am I made of glass, but I I am transparent. And I, I don't matter. I'm just a transparent vessel in this world of transparent vessels. You, you can almost think of that as being a physical metaphor for how some of us exist in the online era, right? Yeah. In the era of retweets, mm-hmm. where where ideas and content often just kind of flow through you and back out. Yeah, it's where it's so easy to be more connected than ever before to the people in your life, but also more isolated. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sharing what I have seen. <laughs> I do not produce my own light. So I wonder if that means that we could see uh, more cases of glass delusion. Yeah, I wondered about what the future of glass mm. delusion might be, since we've we've sort of seen that it might have some relationship to the development of glass technology throughout right. history. Uh, like in the earthenware age, you have the earthenware delusion. In the clear glass age, you have the glass delusion. What could the future material-based delusion be? Like, will we ever have the carbon nanotubes delusion? Huh. I don't know exactly what that would be. I was just trying to think, are there any future materials people could feel like they were? Well, one of the things I thought of was translucent concrete. Have you read about this? No, I have not. Yeah, it's concrete building material that has embedded elements. It might be things like Kool-Aid man. That's what you were referring to earlier. (laughs) Yeah, it might be things like optical fibers that allow the transmission of light. So the Kool-Aid man could be translucent concrete. That's why he's so strong, but you can still see through him. Ah, see, he was he's a visitor from the future. Bringing to us the the joys, the wonders, the the, the holy miracle of yeah. this uh, this this meta material. I, I think that's something that's actually interesting. If you wanted to think about a future in which we do not have such fears about fragility, but we still have the fears about transparency, mm-hmm. maybe there will be the translucent concrete delusion where we we still have all of these ideas about who sees me, who sees into me, who sees through me. Do I exist? Do I take up space? Do I reflect light? But people aren't so concerned about their own death. Right. I mean, this could be if we get the the kind of Aubrey de Grey future, yes, where where the ultimate bad ending is not a physical death, but just a bad social outcome. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, this this brings to mind the fact that uh, we do see quantum mechanics and also uh, you know theories regarding the multiverse uh, uh, factor into a lot of our. Um, Considerations about self and where we are in our life, uh, and, and a lot of this, I feel, is, is you know comes from our consumption of media that employs those concepts. Is, is there is there like a comic book or a sci-fi usage of metamaterials that that <laughs> could have this impact on everyone? I don't know. I'm sure there is, and I just can't think of it right now. Yeah, like I'm trying to think if there's a if there's a comic book character who really makes use of some sort of uh, metamaterial or special material. Hmm. Um. Clayface, yeah, maybe, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's sort of like the fear of being. It's always a metaphor, and yeah. Whatever the material is, it's always a metaphor for your personal hangups because Clayface is what he's an actor who's, uh, you know, is he really anybody inside? Right. He can assume all these forms, but he himself is formless. Yeah. Um. Yeah. You know, it also brings to mind, of course, kryptonite, kryptonite which isn't a, a material, but just a what an element. But uh, we do see that used a lot. Someone will say, oh, well, that is my kryptonite. 
Yeah. That is the, the thing that in and of itself can bring about my downfall. So, you know, here's a thought that might be interesting or might be kind of dumb. I'll let you be the judge. Okay. Uh, one thing I was thinking about was that beings with partially glass biology might not be unthinkable in the universe. Hmm. Uh, because here was my reasoning, and, and this isn't original to me. I, I've heard people express this idea before. Earth animals like humans are carbon-based life forms. So we inhale oxygen, which is O2, and then we exhale the waste product, carbon dioxide, which is CO2, because we're carbon-based. Mm-hmm. If it were possible to have a silicon-based organism, and I have no idea if that's possible or not, but it's an idea that comes up in debates about astrobiology. Mm-hmm. And it breathed oxygen like us. Would it inhale O2 and then exhale silicon dioxide the same way we exhale carbon dioxide? Because silicon dioxide is the main constituent of glass. And if that's possible, that is a legitimately horrific space dragon (laughs) that instead of flame breath has glass breath, breath of glass. Ooh. I like it though. It uh you know brings to mind just last week we were talking about Stephen King's Beach World. The, yeah, the old, yeah. Uh, what, 1970s short story about uh, uh, uh about uh individuals landing. I, th- I think it's like two humans and a, mm-hmm. an android or a, a crew of humans and androids that crash on a desert world. And at first it seems lifeless, but of course you wouldn't have a short story if there wasn't something out there. Right. Hiding. So the the silicon sand dunes sort of become sentient and then hypnotize one of the guys. Yeah. Yeah, so you it's pretty creepy. It's pretty creepy. Uh, it's it's one of the, those great early King stories, and uh, yeah, you have silicon-based life in the form of these this uh, you know collective sand entity. But if that kind of life form existed on Beach World, then perhaps there is uh, on the other side of Beach World, there is a, a city where you have glass uh, beings walking around or right? glass breathing dragons or glass breathing dragons. Yeah. <laughs> now there are all kinds of examples in fiction of people shattering. This is, in fact, I think, a very popular trope for some reason. Oh, yeah. The, the, one of the big ones, I feel, that really uh, that really kicked off a lot of it, of course, is in Terminator 2, where yeah. you have uh, the scene where the liquid metal uh, T-1000 is frozen solid with liquid nitrogen and then shattered. Yeah, he's made brittle. Yeah. So you see continuations of that trope, and oh, we, we were trying to think of a, a number of these. Uh, Time Cop has a couple of kills. <laughs> I it's think. great. Uh, my mind immediately went to Jason X uh-huh. because there is a scene in Jason X where Jason murders a, a, an unfortunate young lady by putting her face in some liquid nitrogen that freezes it and then shattering her face on a countertop. Uh-huh. And then uh, Event Horizon, there's a frozen corpse that breaks apart. Mortal Kombat. Oh, yeah. Sub-Zero does that mm-hmm. to you, doesn't he? He freezes you and then punches you to shatter you. Yep, yep, sure does. And then, uh, and then, of course, like mirror creatures. There's the the young Sherlock Holmes movie, which uh, involved a stained glass knight, uh, or at least the uh, uh, the hallucination of a stone of a stained glass knight uh, killing somebody. Um, I seem to recall that both Kroll and Barbarella had minions that shatter into into shards when they are killed. You linked in the notes for this episode a wonderful scene from the movie Warlock 3 that I watched late at oh, night yes. last night, right before I went to bed. Julian Sands, right? Yeah. yeah he was, he's, he's wonderful. And, uh, yeah, he uh, turns a woman into glass and then shatters her. Not with the most uh, pristine of uh, special effects, but, but he still does it, <laughs> so God bless him. 
Um, likewise, uh, there's a you know there's a scene in Labyrinth that involves a reality shattering into glass. Uh, pretty much anything that you could run across that involves Medusa or a Gorgon. There's no if you're going to turn an individual into stone, you also need to shatter somebody that has been turned into stone. Right. Yeah. Even in an age where the glass delusion might not be a common uh, delusion for people to actually suffer from. It is still a very common image in our imagination for some reason. Yeah, because you have things in our life that are beautiful, well-crafted, and pristine, and we attach a lot of value to them, and they are so easily trashed. They're so easily broken into nothing and made made completely useless, made, uh, made you know their, their beauty transformed into just ugliness, and we can't help but see our own reflection and see our own doom. Uh, in those examples. <laughs> All right, so there you have it. Mirror delusion, uh, you know, a, a brief journey through the history of mirror delusion, uh, where it came from, and how it, it really hasn't gone away. Uh, <laughs> you know, out, certainly the delusion itself is a psychiatric manifestation you do see very few cases of today. But the, 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 the idea, the concept, the tying of, uh, of, uh, of impermanence to shattered objects continues to resonate. Yeah, we'll always have Mortal Kombat. We will. We always will. All right, hey, in the meantime, if you want to check out more episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, go to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's the mothership. That's where you'll find uh, all the blog posts, all the podcast episodes, all the videos, links out to our social media accounts, because you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Google+. And, hey, the landing page for this episode will include links to uh, some on-site uh, materials that are related, as well as uh, to a couple of off-site sources uh, if you want to explore this topic further. And if you want to tell us about your favorite scene in a movie where somebody gets turned into glass or some other brittle material and then shattered, or if you want to tell us about an interesting delusion where people thought their body was made of some foreign substance or material, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 